0: All right, so welcome to California Women Lawyers' podcast, Seat at the Table. I am your host, Summer Selleck, with my co-host... Sabrina Ashton. Uh, We have the great pleasure of speaking today with District Attorney Nancy O'Malley in lovely Oakland, California. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Um now before we jump in Sabrina and I wanted to give the listeners just a quick highlights reel of of some of your many accomplishments so she's going to
1: All right District Attorney O'Malley is the first woman to serve as Alameda County's elected District Attorney, a position she has held since 2009. She is a nationally recognized expert in issues involving violence against women, violence against persons with disabilities, and interpersonal violence, including sexual assault, domestic violence, elder abuse, child abuse, stalking, human exploitation, and trafficking. One of D.A. O'Malley's passion projects has been the creation of the Alameda County Family Justice Center, where legal, health, housing, psychological, and other support services are available for victims under one roof to further their safety, recovery, and well-being. This center is the second center to open in the United States and currently serves as a model for other communities. D.A. O'Malley's professional accomplishments include monumental contributions in the legislative arena with numerous bills she wrote being signed into law. Within the DA's office, she founded the HEAT unit, which is the Human Exploitation and Trafficking Unit in 2006 and has led to statewide charge in response to human trafficking. In addition, DA O'Malley identified the national problem of backlog in processing rape kits. She brought this issue to the attention of the White House, Congress, and the U.S. Department of Justice and played a significant role in obtaining remedial action, particularly funding and the processing of those kits. DA O'Malley is also the 2016 recipient of the American Bar Association's
0: Margaret Brent Award. Does it ever get tiring listening to all the things that, or, or uh, us
2: talk about all the things that you've done? Or, are you doing fact checking in your head? What are, you, <laughs> what are you thinking? Actually, I'm thinking that was really great. Um, it really captures the highlights of the things I'm very proud of. Uh, and so really I should hire you guys as my speechwriter too.
0: I'm in, <laughs> I'll, I'll drop everything right now. <laughs> right. So, um, would you like us to call you D.A. O'Malley? Nancy, what would you prefer? Nancy. Okay, Nancy, thank you very much. I just want to make sure. Um, so, Sabrina and I were talking on the way here about that moment when you realize you want to be a lawyer. I can remember mine, she can remember hers. I'm wondering if there is there that moment for you when you said, okay, this is it.
2: Well, uh, when, I, when I got out of college, I did not think I would be a lawyer. In fact, I kind of rejected the idea. My dad was a lawyer and he always said, you should be a lawyer and my mother would say, oh my God, you sound like a lawyer and things like that. Um, but after I graduated from college, I was diagnosed with cancer. And it was at a very early time when they were first figuring out chemotherapy. And so I was very, very fortunate to go to Stanford for my treatment. And it was kind of an exotic disease at the time. Well, it was cancer, but an exotic form of cancer. So, uh, so I met with the oncologist and had all the tests and everything and then we were gonna start my treatment. And he told me what he was gonna do. And I said to him, well, I actually don't wanna follow that schedule, cause I'm taking a class on Mondays. So I prefer to have my chemotherapy on Tuesday cause I knew I'd be sick and I don't wanna miss my class. So he'd say, you're negotiating with me for your treatment? like so unheard of, yeah. especially then, because doctors were everything. Yeah. And here I was fighting for my life and I'm negotiating for the, the treatment. And so about three times into my relationship with this doctor, he, ca- he said, you know what, you should be a lawyer, you really. And I said, God, you sound like my dad, you sound like my mother. <laughs> and, uh, and by the time I finished my chemotherapy, I was applying to law schools.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean, that's intense. So that's when you knew. So about what age
2: range were you? I was, uh, I think, 20, let's see, 25 maybe?
0: And you come from a family of, of lawyers and judges, so it's interesting to, to see that that wasn't the path that you just had when you were growing up. I um, Your, your brother has called you uh, Nando, right? Na- Nambo. Nambo. Nambo for Rambo and, and Nancy. So, I mean, I always just pictured you
2: being somebody who just knew they were going to go to law school, so. Well, interesting about my family, because uh, my dad was a lawyer and a judge. um, And then I went to law school, and my brother, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and then he married a woman who was his office mate in Contra Costa DA's office, who's now a judge. But my parents had nine kids. Mm -hmm. So my mother used to say, when we were all single, mostly girls, what are you looking for? I've got a lawyer, I've got a therapist, I've got a teacher, you know, what are you looking for in a wife? And so people think, oh my God, your dinner table conversation must have been all about the law, and Dan and I will say, no, we were talking about therapy or you know, volunteer work or whatever, so.
1: Cool. Okay, did um, anyone in particular inspire you to wanna
2: to become a district attorney? When, when I was growing up, my dad was Uh, was one of the founders of the Public Defender's Office in Contra Costa. He'd been a deputy DA and been in private practice, but when the opportunity came, he moved to the Public Defender's Office and they created it. So I would go with him as a kid uh, to his office on Saturdays and he'd tell me, read this case and then tell me what it's about. And it was my way of being with my dad, for one, because we are a lot of kids in our family, so Mm -hmm. you find your time. And so. I remember that really very, very clearly about reading cases and thinking about the law and things like that. The, um, when I became a lawyer, I went into private practice and during law school, I had worked for a small firm. and So I would join the firm as soon as I uh, passed the bar or graduated and passed the bar. And I remember going to court in Contra Costa County. I, my client's name started with A It probably was just get a continuance. I can't remember exactly what I was doing, uh, but I had no idea what to do, even though I'd gone through all the mock trials and everything. So I waited, watched what everybody else did, and then they came back around to the A's again, and I got my continuance, and I literally remember walking into the hallway of the courthouse saying, I am not going to be a lawyer who doesn't know what to do in a courtroom. So I was really fortunate to know someone here in the DA's office and I came and met with him and said, you know, what do you think? Uh, what do you think I should do? I'm kind of at a quandary in my career being a one-year lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, uh, he oh, said do you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and what he said was really great advice, which I also give, and that is that um, the role of the district attorney in the criminal justice system is a very, the responsibility is awesome. And awesome, I mean huge, not, sc- not cool, but yeah. huge. And that it's the DA who oftentimes determines who comes into court, who gets filed, who charges, uh, you know, whether somebody's freedom is taken away, how we work with victims. And he said, uh, you know, as a responsible person, that that's the kind of person who should be in that position of power and authority. So I was fortunate that I got a job. They they had um, some openings, and I got hired. And. Seriously, from the second day I entered the office, I've loved it every day.
0: Awesome. Now,
2: before you were part of the DA, were you doing defense work? I did have one case um, that interestingly involved a guy who was charged with a a sexual deviation case. And I was, in college, was a rape crisis counselor, so I understood about the impact on victims of sexual assault crimes and sexual exploitation even back then so it was it was a challenge for me to sit at the table with the guy and you know but i did my job and it was it was important i understood and really embraced the role of the defense side people need representation absolutely Uh, but i didn't that was the only case i had we were primarily doing real estate and other types of law which was really very interesting Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was, it was a small practice, and I was a new lawyer, and I wanted excitement. Yeah. I wanted to be in the courtroom. I wanted to try cases and you know, kind of mix it up with everybody. And in my whole life, probably since I learned how to walk, I've never been the sit-back-and-wait person. So sitting back and reviewing contracts or things like that just wasn't quite cutting it for me.
1: Well, you've talked about this a little bit, but what drives you in your profession?
2: I um, you know, I, I talked about my year of um, going through chemotherapy and when I was first diagnosed, everybody just assumed that I was gonna die because the, the cancer that I had was really rapidly growing and it was very new and nobody really knew what was gonna happen. So it sounds hokey, but it's true that I have a very, I, I was lying in the hospital bed at Stanford waiting to go under the knife, so to speak, um, and I just had to commit myself to what's, what am I, how am I going to be as a person who survives cancer or as a person who dies from cancer. And if I die, I have to figure out how my life meant something to others. And if I live, that it's the gift that I have to serve others. And, you know, thankfully I lived. And even during that year of having chemo, uh, there were the uh, side effects for a lot of people were very dramatic. And just even something like losing hair, losing all the, your eyebrows, your eyelashes, things like that, was really, made, made people very depressed. And I understood it, because for a while I wouldn't look at myself in the mirror. Um, so my doctor asked me to work, to talk to people. And that gave me great, um, great motivation to be somebody who could be strong for others and somebody who could maybe help others get through a crisis. And that's really what uh, what does my whole career has been about, of seeing injustice or seeing people exploited or victimized by others and helping them get through that process. So your
0: advocacy work started as a patient?
2: Well, it started before that, but it was really defined for me as a patient. Um, my, my dad, when he was the district attorney, funded the first rape crisis center in Contra Costa and then came home to all of us at the dinner table and said, what are you doing for volunteer work? You know, what, what, you've got a nice life here. What are you doing to help others? And that was my area. But I think now when I listen to my siblings, even when we were growing up, we went to Catholic school and, you know, we'd get bullied by the public school kids. And finally, I think I was in about the fourth grade, I just threw my books down and said, fine, you want to fight? I'll fight you. Of course they ran away because they didn't really want to fight. They just wanted to bully like most bullies. <laughs> um, and so my, my job as protector has been for lifelong.
0: Yeah, you probably do that in the courtroom too. <laughs> right, you wanna fight? I'm gonna give you a fight. <laughs> okay, um, did you have a mentor? Is there anybody that you can, or, or multiple mentors? I mean.
2: Well, for sure, multiple mentors. So Carol Corrigan okay. was in the dist- in my office when uh, when I got hired. She was the one who recommended my hiring. And she was a strong, outspoken very smart, very ethical woman lawyer. And at that time, it was mostly men in the office. That
0: is the 80s, right? That
2: was the 80s. Yeah. And even in that time, if there were cases like sexual assault or domestic violence, oh, let the women handle it. Yeah. And I remember telling one of the lawyers, hey, this is about practicing law, and I have a sensitivity, so I want to do these kind of cases, but don't pretend that everybody in this office cannot step into a courtroom and handle these cases because that's wrong. And so I Carol was a was a tremendous influence and mentor to me. And there have been judges that I've practiced in front of um, you know there have been men who have been very strong mentors. I have to say Tom Orloff my my uh, former boss who was the district attorney. I had the chance to work very closely with him for 10 years as the chief assistant. But even before then when I was moving my way up the ladder uh, smart methodical, strategic, really helped me go from, you know, I'm going in and fight to let me think about how I can best impact this outcome. And those are lessons that I, I I, I mean, I I use them every day still as the DA.
0: Strategy, so we taught you, to be a little bit more strategic, Mm -hmm. interesting. Do you have a specific mantra
2: that you use or think about on a daily basis? A uh, couple things. One is um, just as a woman in the practice and as a, an activist in the community, my very favorite saying that drives me is, "If you're not at the table, you're on the menu." So, that's
0: why this is called "Seat at the Table." Actually, oh, is so, that right? Yeah, we oh, named it for you. Very, so. very
2: cool. Yeah. Well, it's true that you know the only way that we are in leadership in all professions is that we forced ourselves to the table, and so many women before me really force their way in. Um, so that's one that that really drives me. I want to be at the table. And even in areas that aren't obviously part of my purview, like what's happening with our transportation? And you know all this stuff factors into public safety into healthy communities and and so that's one of them. And the other one that i that I say now is to professionals if you're if this is in your purview, do your job. And sometimes they say, do your damn job. Like, this is, you're the one with the legal authority, do your job. Because if we don't do our jobs, and I say this to myself and to my staff, we're the only ones with the authority to protect victims of crime in the way that we do and move cases into the system and make sure victims aren't brutalized and make sure that people aren't wrongly convicted and that we have evidence and all the things that go along with being a DA. If we don't do our job, nobody else can do it because we're the only ones with the authority. And I think about that with, with um, Department of Social Services for the state, that they have authority over trafficked and exploited youth, do your job. That's what we need you to do, do your job. Just to turn for a second, I know we don't
0: like to talk about, just generally people don't like to talk about hurdles or, or failures, but are there any hurdles that you've had, any, any failures that have changed your perspective on the legal profession, if you care to talk about them?
2: well sure uh i mean i i think that uh when i when I joined the office like I said, there was primarily men um primarily uh white men who were in charge, and so being able to um express myself without being marginalized as either a big mouth or too bold or you know who do I think i am um those kind of hurdles at at any given time, I could have just said, screw it, I'll just go do my, I'll just do my little thing and get my paycheck and be done with it. Um, but how to navigate those waters mm-hmm. became really important to me. And not being willing to, when people push back, of not accepting that. Probably the, the greatest story I have about that is that, um, Sabrina, you mentioned about the work with the testing the backlog of rape Mm -hmm. kits. I had the opportunity to be in a big room with the FBI director when he just was new to the job. And after he finished talking to this whole group of law enforcement and chiefs of police and stuff and a couple of women in there, um, he said, enough about me. Tell me what's happening here in the Bay Area. And I was like, screw it, I'm taking my shot. I have something to talk about, and I want to talk about the untested rape kits and how hard it is for the FBI to get to their to to the the database and all that kind of stuff, and I got you know I spit out my information in about two or three minutes and and um, I of course was prepared with my materials, and when I when I went up to get my picture taken with him afterwards he said, I just want you to know I know how hard it is to change a system, but we're behind you, Mm -hmm. and uh, and then after that like a couple weeks later I was sitting in Congress at the budget hearings for the the subcommittee on budget for the FBI. And he's talking about this phenomenon about rape kits not being tested and how unfair it was. And, you know, I met this passionate prosecutor and I'm going, oh my God, is this my life? Like, am I really sitting here? And he's really saying that. So he had worked it out for me to meet his crime lab people to work, talk about this pilot project I wanted to propose. So I got to the meeting and sat down with them and said, oh, you know, oh, I'm so excited. Like, wow, this is amazing. Lay out the thing, and they looked at me and said, no. I'm like, no. No. Okay. All right. Well, how about blah, 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 blah. No.
0: Why no?
2: And they said, we'll just call your crime lab people and tell them to do a better job. So, of course, me with my big mouth, no governor in my mouth. "Uh, I don't need you to make any phone calls for me because I come from an office where Earl Warren was the district attorney. And when we change, make change, it's not just for Alameda County. It's for the country. So that's what I'm about. So I left and very defeated and thought, okay, end of story, door shut, they're in charge. And then I sat on it for a couple of weeks and this is the place where those barriers were, that could have been the stop and it would have been completely legitimate. So I wrote him an email and said, I'm going to report back to Congress about our meeting, as is your boss, the, D- the FBI director. So I wanna make sure we're on the same page because what I believe happened at our meeting was nothing. So if you disagree with me, please let me know because I'm about to file my report. Mm. That kind of hit the roll, take a moment to think about it and then come up with a strategy and push through it. And I think that those kind of barriers for all of us, for women in the profession, where you come up against these stops and they could be the stop and that could be the end of it for anybody, but we push through. And I think that's one of the things California women lawyers does yeah. for women, and particularly younger women lawyers, is give us the strength
0: the and the
2: confidence to push through those barriers and keep moving.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. That's, so what? So eventually, obviously, the rape kits got tested. So you rape won. Kids, we you, we won. You we threw won. your books Whoa. down and you said, "Come at me," and it, <laughs> had, it worked, right?
2: Yeah. Well, we we're still we're we have done a we've moved the dial a lot I, on the rape kit testing. Uh, you know it. Was also by a wonderful miracle that I had the opportunity to meet with the with the vice president's advisor on violence against women, yeah. and um, presented it to her the, the dilemma that I had well, we had identified, and we actually I did a flow chart because it was so complicated like where's the gap and stuff, and she got it, and about three weeks later I had messages I didn't was well, I was got emails. Missed them all, so at eight o'clock at night, I'm reading this series of emails, please join the president and the vice president for a phone call.
0: Wow.
2: That was like six hours ago. Um, You know, a little later. So you stood them up? So I stood them all up, yep. And then, so there were three succession ones and it said basically, I want you to know that your initiative is in the president's budget. And so, um, and I'm sitting at my desk all by myself going, yay, (laughs) yay, and then, and you know, that was exciting, but you guys know, because you're both activists, that you, you work, you work, you work, you get, your, you get the results, and then you work and work and work and get yeah. the results. But in this case, I actually allowed myself the moment to reflect on what had just happened,
0: yeah.
2: which I still, it's overwhelming to me. I can't even, it's yeah. almost like I can't let it in.
0: It's monumental. It's mo- it it's is. It's changed the whole it way and it, the it's country a, thinks about sexual yeah. violence. Yeah and, and, and it's
2: changed the laws and yes. so the outcome has been $130 million in federal money yeah. for local law enforcement to get the kits tested, changes in the law to you know have law enforcement submit the kits to be tested and you know just a great public awareness about the injustice that still happens with sexual assault cases Absolutely. and sexual assault survivors.
0: That's amazing I, I mean you've really pushed us into a different
2: Plain, well, you know. Well, me and a lot of people. And a lot of people, but,
0: you know, I, I think we'll, we'll take the moment to say, you know, wow, that was really huge. Yeah. Um, so would that be your greatest achievement?
2: No, I think, uh, you know, I think that Sabrina really captured it, which is why I'm still blown away by your introduction. The great achievements that I feel are the creation of the Family Justice Center okay. and how incredible it is. The people that work there are amazing. Um, Sheree Allison, mm-hmm. member of CWL, uh, is our executive director. And it's not just a place where we provide comprehensive collaborative responses, but now it's a place of empowerment. So we have uh, programs for women that have been battered, and they learn about financial literacy and things like that. And, and now we have – called, that's called Step Up. And now step up to work is we have women, right now 12 women learning how to write code. Oh, wow. And one woman has already gotten her first job wow. as a person writing code, whatever you call those people. Coder. Coder. I Coder. I <laughs> <got> <laughs> making, making a living wage with herself and her daughter. And so it's a pl- it's, that's, that makes me very, very proud. Um, and of course the rape kit backlog and then the work around human trafficking and how far we've been able to move society to recognizing and responding to human trafficking of all forms. That
0: it, is true. It just seems like when you started in the 80s, all these things, human trafficking, um, domestic violence, rape, they were all not, not talked about. And it seems like you've been at least one of the forces that has really pushed the dial on getting, now that's what, what the community is talking about. They're talking about sex trafficking, they're talking about you know, rape kits. And so, I mean, that has to feel like an amazing accomplishment, though. I mean.
2: It is. It, it, it's, it's amazing to me that, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, nobody talked about it. Um, eight years ago, people weren't talking about it. Five years ago, people were still wondering okay. if it was true. Um, and just to see how society has really transformed in a relatively short period of time to something that's been going on for a very long time. That's got
0: to be a great feeling, though, to, to look back and think of you in that bed in Stanford and thinking, if I, if I survive, I'm going to have to do something. I'm going to do something big, and then realizing you've been the dial mover.
2: Yeah, it is. It's overwhelming yeah. to, you know, as you reflect. If I reflect that, that closely on it, it's, it is.
0: It's awesome. So,
2: so one, one, what I say to myself and to others is when you have the accomplishment, allow yourself to reflect on it. Because as women particularly we're go 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 do 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 multitask and it's easy to forget the contributions that we make that are monumental to somebody. Maybe it's all society, maybe it's the one person that you helped or you know, especially as lawyers, that we don't always we don't always give ourselves that moment to go, wow. Thank you.
1: That is very good advice.
2: Yeah.
0: I wonder if, if you think that's a difference for women lawyers versus versus male lawyers, because I know I never, I try never to stop, and I know Sabrina tries mm-hmm. never to stop, and I can see that you never stop. Right. Um, <laughs> do you think that m- maybe there's a difference in, in patting yourself on the back for the, the two
2: different genders? I think that um, with, with men that are m- closer to my age than mm-hmm. you guys, and you're mm-hmm. young, and and exciting and, and it's wonderful to, to watch you. Uh, I think for the society didn't accept men to express emotion uh, from my generation and, and even you know the one beneath me. Um, but I think that with millennials and with uh, like Generation Xers, there's a, a more acceptance of and realization that men probably feel things deeper yeah. and At least they give them credit for, right?
1: Yeah, Yeah. right. Okay. Do you think there's a difference between um, being a woman leader versus the male leaders that you
0: saw in your office or in other offices? Are there different rules is kind of what I want to know, or do you think that there are different rules?
2: I think there are, first to to your point, Sabrina, I do think there's a difference in leadership from women than men. I think that, uh, I mean, there's a lot of research around this issue also. Uh, but women, I, I don't wanna sound like I'm stereotyping it, but women, um, you know, bring a different focus on the workplace um, and particularly for other women and for men, like just maternity leave, paternity leave as a perfect example that we recognize now that it's critically important for a parent to bond with their baby. And it isn't just mom. But Dad has to bond with their baby, and they should be able to bond with their baby. So I think that those are initiatives that women have brought into it. I, I also think there are different rules, and you know there um, and it may be different rules for people that are more outspoken. and of course, we know still in too many places if if women confront men, even if it's respectful confrontation, that they're treated differently, they're, sometimes excluded from the meeting room or they're labeled in a certain way mm-hmm. uh, as being too aggressive or, you know, we saw this frankly in the campaign mm-hmm. between Hillary Clinton and the the other people mm-hmm. that no matter what she, I mean, she, on so many areas she was speaking truthfully about situations and conditions and accomplishments and challenges and That would make anybody it should make anybody at that level be anxious about where our country's going and yet she got labeled so often as somebody who was hysterical or all the terms that they place on women yeah it's
0: interesting how have
1: you um, used that to your advantage
2: or how have you been able to overcome some of those challenges I work really hard not to pretend I'm somebody that I'm not and I think it's almost impossible to conceal someone's true personality. That's very good advice. Yeah. (laughs) So and this is we talked to trial lawyers about find your style and then refine your style. When I was a new deputy watching some of the guys try cases I think oh I like that oh that's pretty good but it wasn't me but I thought that's what you had to do so it was awkward. I mean, I can remember giving a closing argument in my second misdemeanor trial, and it was the jury is looking at me like, this woman's a psycho. Like, I have no idea what she's talking about in this closing argument because I had taken it from someone else. So I realized, you know, what's my style? And how do, I, how do I communicate with people? And how do I pay attention to what people are saying and things like that? And so, so I really think that that is critical, is that find your style, be comfortable with it, And don't hold back. Uh, And you know, there's a. I mean, I have to say that I've gotten great feedback about you're too in your face sometimes, or you know, let other people talk, uh, that kind of stuff. And I hear it. I mean, I really reflect quite a bit on how I am. Uh, And we all under stress, you know, we kind of lose track of how we come across and things. So I'm I reflect a lot on that, and I also invite a lot of people around me to reflect on their.
0: Behavior too. Mm -hmm.
2: Like listen, and I start with look, I reflect a lot on how I how I come off. I'm a strong woman and I speak my mind and I'm very strategic. So I get it. So I realize that, you know, if I go in a room I can scare some people. I don't want to do that. I want to, you know, be able to support people and communicate, which I do. So I, I invite people to reflect on themselves and how they how they come across and you know, manage their stress so it doesn't come out through their, their verbal interactions.
1: Do you think that CWL was a place that allowed you to blossom and find that voice or, or enhance that voice?
2: I, when I joined CWL, I felt like I had landed on the moon yeah. with oxygen, a full supply of oxygen. Me too. You know, it was, first of all, women from all over the state. different types of law they were practicing. There wasn't this sort of backstabbing, competitive thing. We were all moving in the direction of what can we do to enhance and be the voice for women lawyers. And that to me was awesome. And I think that what, because it's such a diverse organization and because it's statewide, the exposure, like you're from Contra Costa and you're from Fresno County, and you guys are partners now. Yeah. And you know, there's so many people that I was able to do things with that gave different perspectives or came from different backgrounds. And we but but in the end we had such a level a commonality. So yes, I do think that CWL is an amazing place for women lawyers to find their voice and to grow their careers and to, you know, be exposed to other opportunities that they may not have, have understood. And the other thing about CWL is that, you know, a lot of times uh, when, when men get picked for the projects, it's because they show up at the meetings and the women are back doing the work. CWL, yeah. you show up for the meetings and you're doing work <laughs> yeah. and you can grow if you want to. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to, but if you want to, it's a great opportunity. Absolutely.
0: So truly. Um, Prudence Hutton wanted me to ask you specifically, mm-hmm. how important do you think the role of women's organizations like CWL or or Women's Bar Association is for the advancement of women. Do you think it's
2: necessary? I do. I think it's critical. I think that uh, with traditional bars, like the County Bars Association, and you know, we're seeing more women in leadership, of course, uh, because there are more of us for one, but we are seeing women in leadership. But some of the issues that women confront in the legal community are different than men. And so I do think that women bar associations give a voice and give legitimacy to women lawyers. When I was coming up in the ranks, and particularly when I became the president, CWL had really not been involved in the political process or the legislative process. But really, if you think about it, there're three 3,000, we were 3,000 strong, yeah. and, uh, or maybe more. Um, and how could we not have, be an influencer of how society looks? And I think one of the first bills that we really got involved in was when they were uh, handcuffing pregnant women who were incarcerated. And we took that on as an issue. And nobody could deny the voice of 3,000 women, even though there were only two or three of us standing there. We represented the voice of women lawyers. And not everybody and all women are on the same page in terms of politics or careers or you know decisions. But, but as a united front, we are legitimate because of CWL and other women bar associations.
0: It does also feel like in a women's bar association, you can find a commonality, even if you're a different political ideas or what have you. So I understand that.
1: Do you ever meet with or interact with other women leaders in some type of setting that's like a California Women Lawyers that
2: is for
1: district attorneys or for elected officials?
2: Uh, So... The uh, in, in my county, we're very fortunate because a lot of the department heads and our county administrator are women. Uh, it's a very women-strong um, leadership in the county. So we meet, um, and, you know, it, it's not exclusive to women. There's not some uh, different ways that we interact uh, with some of our male counterparts. But it's, a, it's great to be standing amongst several other women as leaders of departments and things like that. I do think that organizations like California, Leadership California, which is a woman-based organization that helps train women to be leaders in whatever field they're in, is an excellent organization. And it also, you know, there's a lot of training like Emerge, that's really for women learning how to run for office. Breen is a part of that. Yay for you, (laughs) good, I'm excited about that. Yeah, me too. Future elected (laughs) DA. Uh, but, you know, that's one where they really are, are uh, identifying the strengths of women and helping women figure out how they can use their best strengths and the strength of all the people with them yes. to accomplish something tremendous. And so I do think that those organizations and the types of, of um, programs that are really for women and women in leadership are invaluable. What are some other... Um, Are there other groups that you've
1: participated in that you also have found helpful?
2: Well, in my own profession, the California District Attorney's Association, we now have 19 elected women lawyers out of the 58 counties. When I became the DA, which is now eight years ago, there were five of us. And uh, so there's been a big growth there, and that's exciting. When there was, uh, even before I became the DA, uh, the few women, lawyer, b- women DAs would have uh, dinner, just the women, at our conferences, and they called it the diva dinner, and that has carried on, and, uh, you know, now we have the men trying to, trying to get their way in, but it's really reserved for just the women, so we can have conversation and, and discuss things. I, many years ago, I, when there was, a, the president of the DA's association was a an older guy that had been in the, I think he was the longest sitting DA in the state at the time. And I um, approached them to create a women's section. And for him, the answer was no, I don't like segregating people like that. It's not healthy. And I was trying to convince him that there are different issues for women prosecutors in the workplace. And we should be able to have a women's section. We've never gotten to that women's section and maybe it's not as as, um, significant now in that context, but uh, one of our one of our DAs, Jackie Lacey who's the district attorney of LA, has gotten very involved with the National DAs Association and she has she just got reelected to her second term. she started a women's section for the National DAs Association. Man, you can't even get in that room. it's so packed. Wow. So clearly there's an appetite and there's a, a desire for women to be able to network with women and not feel like if I share a personnel problem in my office, I'm not going to be judged by, by this guy. Oh, you're just a woman. You're w- weak or whatever. I don't, whatever the thing is. But it's been, it's hugely successful. And I think that that's, uh, you know, another great, uh, those women like, like um, uh, so many women that have been solo as prosecutors, as the, the head DAs, have really forged this ahead for all of us.
0: Cool. Um, I know you're busy, and we probably should wrap this up because you've got things to do. Um, But I I wanted to ask if you could, this will be listened to hopefully by 3,000 lawyers, women lawyers, if you could speak directly to to the women that are listening um, and in the profession today, what would you want them to know? What would you want them to remember?
2: Uh, To all the women lawyers out there, that everyone has their goals, and that there's no uh, there's no um, one pathway for how women achieve satisfaction in their in their careers, and make a contribution to society. And so, really, it's identify and, and uh, you know like I spoke earlier about stay in your lane. For women lawyers, you don't have to stay in your lane. We can experience other uh, other ways of doing business, we can meet other lawyers that are practicing unique kinds of law. We have women who are leaving the profession as traditional litigators or or practitioners and starting businesses that are outside the law profession but really fall back on the training they've received. So it's really, the, the opportunities have never been better for women in our profession, for all of us, to pick a path that we want to pursue and not, and be able to pursue it to the full extent. And not everybody wants to be the head of an organization or a partner or whatever, but some do. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really what's beautiful for women lawyers now, is that if you want to be the head, you want to be a partner, and if you're in a firm that doesn't look like that's gonna be a successful pathway, go to another firm, yeah. or start your own. I mean, there's so much opportunity to achieve that level of satisfaction that we want in life, because at the end of your, our lives, when we reflect back, we don't want to say, God, I should have done blah, blah, blah. We want to say, this was a satisfying life, and I'm so happy that I lived in these times when with my, with my degree, with my license, with my intellect, with my personality, I could do what I wanted and, and feel like I made a difference and my mark on society was felt by someone and others. Well, your mark has definitely been felt by many people, so those are
0: some strong words for our listeners. Anything else from you, Sabrina? Yes. No, we thank you so much for yes. taking this time
2: with us today. Thank you. This was you. amazing. I
0: couldn't have asked for any more. So.
2: Well, let me say about the two of you. Oh, no. That, uh, you know, I uh, I have watched you both in your young years, probably more, some are you, because I've seen you around more. Um, but both of you are the leaders of of now and will really just continue to grow it's really exciting and I have to say I appreciate that you find a table and find your seat at that table because if we're not continuing to build like if in my generation if we're not opening doors and creating opportunities and sharing what we can for younger women like you both then it dies with the person who held on to that like we're like you know the the bird that we're sending out into the universe. and Passing you know, the baton. <laughs> we're <laughs> passing the ways. baton in a lot of ways. And, and it's a responsibility, I think, of women uh, of my generation to make sure that women of your generation have what you need to continue moving us into even more directions than what what we know at my level. So thank you both very very much. And thank Absolutely. you for that. Yeah you've got really big
0: shoes to fill And I'd be <laughs> lying if I said sometimes when I'm facing a, a hurdle, I don't think you know what would what would Nancy O'Malley yes, do so exactly <laughs> um, you know, so that's
2: amazing. Because I say what would summer or Sabrina do? <laughs> oh yeah
0: sure. Okay. All right, well thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you.